Another successful backpacking trip out and back. One of the things that, that is good with a, with a good, good group like uh, those that we had with us this time, I mean, they talked about rolling down the steep flowered slope, but nobody actually did it. That's where the name Buttercup came from, by the way. But um, oh, it's, it's good when you have a group of guys that'll, that'll follow along and, and, and do the things you say and not do the things that you say not to do because mountaintops can be beautiful places, Right? There's gorgeous, no, we lost it. There's gor- there was gorgeous scenery up there. And yet, it can also be a very dangerous place. Why is it that mountaintops can be so dangerous? When you're so high up, like I showed you in that one picture, there's a long way to fall. And uh, sometimes that happens. And, and you know, that's true of hiking, mountaintops on steep slopes, you've got to be careful. But it's also true of life. In terms of life and the spiritual life, spiritual journey, we like the mountaintops, don't we? By mountaintops, we mean the good times. Things are going great. Everything's good. It's perfect. It's wonderful. Oh, I'm experiencing God's blessings. We don't like the valleys when things are difficult, when it's tough. It seems like we're at a low point in our life. We don't like those valley times. We like the mountaintop times, right? Well, the problem with a mountaintop is mountaintops can also be dangerous places. You can slip from there. And if you're way high up on the mountaintop, sometimes the fall can be hard. People can get hurt. Well, that's kind of what's in our story today as we look at Joshua chapter 6, 7, and 8. This is the tale of two cities. Now, I know somebody else has used that title before. I've sort of borrowed it. There, There was another tale of two cities where there was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Very good. You went to English Lit. All right. And yet this is the tale of two cities. There is a contrast here that is important for us to mark. It, 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 it shows us how to live on the, val- on, on the valleys as well as on the mountaintops. And um, in, this, in, this, in this tale of two cities, we'll be on page uh, 181, if you're using the church Bible. We'll be uh, in Joshua chapter 6, 7, and 8. But the first thing to pick up, even as we start, is that this is a spiritual journey. This, as we step into this new life that God has given us, as we gain new ground, it's not merely following directions. It's not merely doing the right things and having a better life. This is a spiritual life. It is a spiritual battle. We are engaged in gaining new ground in a spiritual life that God has recovered and restored us to. And we walk by faith with him, and there are dangers and there are enemies that are unseen to us. Even like the little bitty things in the water, we don't see them, but there is danger around us. There is danger lurking, and so we walk God's way. And just to, just to underscore that spiritual aspect of our life, the spiritual aspect of the battle that we're in, I wanted to start at the very end of Joshua chapter 5. So Joshua chapter 5 from verse 13 Joshua was by Jericho. Now, that, now they have come through the Jordan River. They have gone through the circumcision party. They have celebrated. They have put worship first. They have, have celebrated Passover together. And now the, the spies, of course, have returned, and they are, they are getting ready to advance on Jericho. Jericho is the obstacle in their way. Jericho is going to be the first point of contact as God brings them into this new land. If they're going to gain new ground, it's going to be through Jericho. And so Joshua is, is there, and he's looking. He's kind, of, he's kind of stepped toward Jericho a little bit, and he's looking at the city, imagining what God is going to do. When, Jer- when Joshua was by Jericho, in verse 13, he lifted up his eyes. 
he looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him. Now, if I saw somebody standing in the path this weekend with a, with a, with a drawn sword in his hand, I would not have went to him. I would have said, hmm. But Joshua is strong and courageous. And Joshua steps up to him and he says, who are you and what are you doing here? Well, something like that. He says it this way. Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Are you with us or against us? And he he answered, no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and he worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. See what's going on here? That's not one of those Moses to Joshua moments, isn't it? That uh, Moses, my servant, is dead, and now Joshua is going to be lifted up, and Joshua is going to be the point man leading them into the land. Joshua leads them in where Moses could not, and uh, yet there's these comparisons and these, this handoff from Moses to Joshua, and this is one of those, but it's more than that. God's army is ready. God's army is in this battle. I don't think it was an earthquake, by the way, that knocked Jericho's walls down. I think it was the angels tumbling them from the inside out. Angels pushing on the tops of those walls all the way around because the army of the Lord of hosts is here. And now I have come. Now I am ready. Now's the time to advance. God is with them. It's a spiritual battle. And our help also is not as visible to us as it is real. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so notice as well, Joshua asked him, he said, are you with us or with our enemies? He says, no. Remember, the book started out, Moses, my servant, is dead. Moses was God's servant. Joshua is now God's servant. It is not the other way around. Sometimes we want to use God as our servant. We want God to do our stuff for us. Hey, Lord, would you run over to Winco and bring back some donuts? No. No, he's not going to do that. Somebody else could serve us in that way. But, but God, God is not our servant to respond to our whims and, and at our beck and call for the things that we would like for him to do for us. We are God's servant, you see. It's the other way around. No, I'm not, I'm not with you, the Lord says. Rather, are you with me? So it's a spiritual battle. God is going to give the victory. We know that true archaeological. I thought, I thought I'd, I'd point out just a few of the archaeological background stuff um, in Jericho. Jericho was only discovered, uh, the, the ruins of Jericho were only discovered in the early 1900s where they dug into the hill and they found, look, there's an old city here. In fact, it's a real old, it is a, such an old city. It's the oldest, oldest city we know about. And uh, as they dug down into these ruins, initially they, they found some fantastic things. They found, for instance, that, um, well, as they dug in different excavations along the way, they discovered that, the, that, the, that when the walls collapsed in the city, they, they, normally if, if walls were, were attacked by an invaded army, they would be pushed inward. These walls just collapsed upon themselves, and the bricks fell downward on the slope, and so they even provided those bricks that made the wall became steps upon which the Israelis from all around the city could advance up, climb right up that, that, that lower 15-foot retaining wall. And they could go right up into the city from all the way around. They didn't just go in the gate. They went in everywhere. 
All the walls collapsed, except they dug at one part of the north, and this was like in the early, in the 1930s, they dug at the north end of the city, and they found a section of the wall at the north end of the city, which is where Rahab's house was, not near the gate, but on the north edge of the city, and the wall there had not collapsed, and there were houses built right up against the wall, even as is described with Rahab's house, and that is the one section of the wall that was found that had not collapsed. Not only that, but they found articles that they could articles they could date, these little amulets from the pharaohs that identified who was pharaoh at the time. It's like he gave out little coins, I'm the pharaoh now, kind of thing. Maybe they were like campaign buttons, I don't know. But they had the pharaoh's name, and they had the name of the pharaoh. You see, the, the line at that time was, oh, it didn't really happen the way the Bible said. You know, the Bible is just kind of telling a general story. It's making a spiritual point, but it's not historical because if Israel entered the land in, in the 1400s, then there was no Jericho there. Jericho had already been captured. Jericho had been ruined in the 1500s B.C. So the line went until they found the amulets, not, not amulets, but little token things, I forget what they're called, scarabs, I think they're called, that identified the pharaoh who was pharaoh in 1400 B.C. So that city was not taken in 1500s. It was taken in 1400, just when the Bible puts Joshua and his army across the Jordan. Last thing I'll show you is when they entered, or, or, or as they dug up Jericho, they found these big uh, storage pottery bins from uh, full of grain. They said, oh, okay, whatever. They were full of grain. Oh, oh, they also found a three-foot layer of burned ash across the whole city. The whole city had been destroyed by fire, including these storage jars full of grain. Okay, so all that lines up. The walls came tumbling down. The whole city is burned up. All that sounds just like Joshua 6, but the grain. Now, if an army took a city in the first place, If they destroyed the city in the second place, before they lit the match, what do they do? They take the grain because you have got a lot of hungry mouths to feed. And so you would always take the grain because this was just after harvest, which was a lousy time to attack a city because they can hold it out. They can wait out the siege and the army outside is going to run out of food because there's none left in the land and they have it all locked up inside the fortress. And they had All all the grain was full because they only had seven days of siege before the walls came down. But none of the grain was taken away, which was the most unusual thing that happens here in this story. Because all of it was devoted to God. And God said, this city is mine. Everything here is devoted to me. You give the first fruits of what you have, the first fruits of what I've given to you. You devote that back to God. And so all of it was to be offered up in a, it was the first grain offering that they participate in in the new land. And so archaeology, again, Jericho is a wonderful place to dig into archaeologically because of what was thought wasn't actually how it was and it actually lines up with the Bible perfectly, the details that we know. Now, one of the other things we see in this, in this, in this uh, that I want to begin reading here in chapter 6, but as I begin reading, I want you to have this in mind, this phrase in mind, Jericho, the first city, the first encounter, Jericho is about stepping into God's word to experience his power and victory. Stepping into God's word. It's not like Frank Sinatra. It's not, I did it my way, I'll do it God's way. And so as we step into God's word, as we step into what God has told us to do, this is where we're going to experience his power, we're going to experience his victory in our own lives. Let me begin reading in in, in chapter 6. So Joshua chapter 6, beginning verse 1. 
Now Jericho was shut up inside and out because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. Inside and out also would refer to those two walls. There's the inner city, which is the upper class, and then there's the lower wall as well, that lower primary wall. And that was, in between the two walls was where the disposable people, the poorer people lived, who would fight tooth and nail to protect themselves and thus protect the upper city. But both of them were shut up, inside and outside. Nobody's going in, nobody's coming out. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. It's strong warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once, and then go home. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests will blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn trumpets, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all of the people will shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down upon itself. And the people will go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord, went before, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests and the Ark, blowing the trumpets. The rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumpets blew. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day that I tell you to shout. Then you will shout. So he caused the Ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about once. They came into the camp, spent the night in the camp. So it seems like we heard the story three times there, right? The point is being made. It's not that this is a really good story, so you want to be sure you get it. In fact, all the details aren't told the first time. It's not like Joshua then adds to what God had said. But because the story is going to be told three times, you get a clearer picture each time. You add in a few more details just to keep you interested and Israel interested. But the point is, first, God says it. And so God tells Joshua, and so Joshua then steps into that, and Joshua says, okay, this is how it is. This is what we're going to do. This is what God has said, and that word passes then to all the people, and now the people step into, and they do around the city just what God has told them to do. So what's going on here? God says it, and so then Joshua tells it, and then the people do it. You see the picture here. It's not merely about um, we, we're going we're gonna to form a good plan and we're going we're gonna to execute our plan. They are going to step into what God in his word has told them to do. So we would take this Bible and we find, hey, the, the, God, God through his word here has told me something I should do. He's told me something I should press after. He's told me something I should run away from. He's told me something I should not, not get entangled in. He's told me something I should devote myself to. And because God has said it, that's what I'm going to do. Because it's going to be the best plan out there, right? Well, this is a very unusual plan. This is not the normal way to take a city. Normally, you don't just march your troops around the city, around the whole city for nothing. You exercise your troops for nothing and you expose them to fire from the wall at the same time. For seven days they do this. And there's no purpose to it other than just, we're going to go on a parade. 
we're going to let the enemy in the city see what we've got and, and measure our whole strength six days straight and one more time on the seventh before we even start the attack. This is not the way you run a battle. And you got the, you got the band right in the middle of the thing? Where did this idea come from? This is not common sense. And yet God's way often is not common sense. Common sense is very common. Anybody could think of that. God's way often will be different than normal. Just, just put that away somewhere. God's way will often be different than normal. It'll often be different from what everybody else is doing. And yet, God's way is the way to power and victory. So they step into God's word. They do it God's way, even if it doesn't seem to make any sense. Now, why lap the city for seven days? Wearing the army out along the way. Why would they go after this day after day? I don't really know. It doesn't really tell us, except even when it doesn't make sense, we do what God says to do. Maybe, maybe six days straight. Maybe seven days. There's, there, is, there is judgment that's going to occur here. One of the things you're seeing, it seems horrible. Why does God just wipe out this whole city? That's, that doesn't seem like a very nice God. We want a nice God. We don't want a God that wipes out whole cities, do we? That seems very harsh and unchristian-like. Folks, God is going to judge this whole world. God is going to wipe out this whole world as you know it, and he has every right to do so. It isn't going to be one city like Jericho. It's going to be the whole ball of real estate. Judgment is coming upon and hanging over this whole world already. Think of Jericho in those terms. And yet God is slow about his judgment. God is waiting. God is delaying. And he's even warning the army laps and it laps and it goes again and one more time around the walls so that everybody can see it coming. Judgment is coming and God will judge. And yet he waits. When did Rahab's family finally show up at her house? Was it Right away? On the first day? Or was it day three? Was it day five? Was it day six? Did God wait for them, give them time to see and to realize and to believe that judgment was upon them and they better listen to Rahab's invitation to come and be saved from the judgment of the one true and living God that was coming upon their city? Judgment is coming, and yet God is merciful. And the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat of God, is right at the center of this parade as it laps the city, though judgment is coming. Following God's word to experience his power and victory, living life, doing life, stepping into this new life, gaining new ground is going to be done God's way by God's word, not the things that I think are going to be the best map of my new life. So that's Jericho. Now, Ai is a different story entirely. Ai is another city. Ai is the city after Jericho. So if you finish the story, if you're finished reading through chapter 6, the walls do come down. They, they rush into the city. They take the city. They are victorious, and they burn everything, and the city is devoted to God, just as God said. This is the first offering, and it's given to God. And then it's going to be on to Ai. 
Ai is the next city. If they're going to continue their advance into this land, God has given them. Jericho was first. Ai is next. And the Ai means ruin. That's what the word means. So, Ai, our way, is ignoring God's word and choosing our own way leads to ruin. Ai is the road to Ai. There's a wordplay going on here. Look at chapter 7 and verse 1. The people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. Remember, the whole city and all the plunder in it, all the silver, all the gold, all the stuff, all the grain was to be burned up in an offering to God. It wasn't for the people of Israel. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. So how many men did this thing? Just one. His name was Achan. So who was God angry at? Was it just this one? Was it just this Achan? No, God's anger now burns against his people because there is sin in their midst. There's something corporate here about Israel that we can understand this part of the story. Now that hangs over what's going to happen next. So we're not told what difference that makes, but it's going to make a difference. It's an interesting way to start the next part of the story. So that's just thrown in there. God is angry with his people. Okay, meanwhile, back at the ranch, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and he said to them, go up and spy out the land. Okay, we've been here before. We go check out the next city. Just operating by protocol now. And the men went up and they spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua, and they said to him, oh, there's giants in the land. We can never take it. No, they didn't say that. They said, easy peasy, lemon squeezy, we can do this. This is just a little place. This is, oh, no problem at all. In fact, it's a little town, you know, it's not so strong. You don't send all of us up there. You know, it's a long, it's like 16 miles. Come on, Joshua, it's uphill. I mean, this is like one of those wilderness hike things. Don't send everybody. Just send, you know, a handful of guys, maybe, maybe two, 3,000. Now, two, 3,000 sounds like a lot of guys, doesn't it? We only took seven. But... When you have an army of half a million or more, well, two or 3,000 is just a drop in the bucket. That's just a handful. So, but this is, this is going to be a piece of cake. Don't make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down in the, in the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And then Joshua tore his clothes and he fell on the earth and his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. And he said to the, he and the elders of Israel, they put dust on their foreheads. They're grieving, they're mourning. And Joshua says, alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content, content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth? And what will you do for your great name? God, where were you? God, why did you let us down? God, it, would, it looks like it would have been better if we just stayed on the other side of Jordan. This doesn't sound like the Joshua of Joshua and Caleb. This doesn't sound like the Joshua that said, yeah, there's giants in the land, but we can do this because God is with us. This, is, this sounds like a different Joshua. This Joshua sounds more like the, the whiners in the wilderness than he does the strong and courageous, doesn't he? 
What's happened here? But the people of Israel had broke faith in regard to the devoted things the chapter started out. The Lord's anger burns against Israel. And as the story proceeds, it seems like a good plan. Send some spies. Okay, how many do we need? Okay, let's send that number up. Where God's plan before was the whole army circles the city. No, let's just send 3,000. We can do this. We've got this. Absent is any word from God. Sometimes I'm not violating God's word. I haven't even bothered to look. I haven't bothered to listen. I haven't taken time to pray and to wait. Sometimes it's that simple. It's not active rebellion. It's inactive or it's passive rebellion. It's, I've got this, Lord. Today, not a problem. I'm not sensing any threats, so I'll just go ahead my way. I'll live life regular-like. Just do normal stuff like everybody else. And I'll miss something that God had would have directed me into this day. Something he would have told me to watch out for. Somebody he would have put on my mind as I read and as I prayed. There's no seeking of God. There's, there's an absence of any word from God. They assume that they can easily do it. We've got this. Confidence in our own ability. Confidence in our natural humanity. That's what the Bible is warning about in the New Testament when Paul talks about the flesh. It's our own natural ability. What we can do for ourselves. We got this. They don't wholly commit. Just a few thousand. This is a side deal. We're not going to give our whole attention to this battle. Mostly we're just going to kind of, you know, hang around and clean our gear, you know, repack our packs and stuff like that. We're going to think about what the future is going to be like instead of engaging in the next battle that God has set before us. We'll send a few guys. We'll, we'll, we'll give a little attention to that, but not much. They don't wholly commit. They don't devote themselves wholly to God's next step for them. And if they don't devote themselves wholly to it, to it it's going to end up in disaster. And, and that's what happens. The tables are turned. Instead of Israel's enemies fleeing before them, which is exactly what God had promised them, your enemies are going to run before you. Instead, the opposite happens. They run from their enemies and 36 die. Now, that's not a big deal, is it? 36 people? Well, it is to those 36 families. But if you send 3,000 and you only lose 36... I mean, that's only 1.2 percentage. I mean, what if over the course of several years, I took 100 guys on one of these backpack trips and I only lost one off the edge of the cliff? After all those, only one student didn't come back. That's pretty good. That's pretty good percentages, right? And you would say, no more backpacking with Bob. We're not going to do that anymore. It doesn't matter the percentage. It isn't supposed to happen like that. And it wasn't supposed to. Now, conventional warfare, most generals would be delighted with those kind of numbers. 1.2% is not a big casualty rate. But it was for Israel because God was with them. It was supposed to be the other way around. God has not been with him. That's what, that's what Joshua is crying out about. After so quickly seeing God work, now they're asking, God, where were you? 
That's why mountaintops can be such dangerous places. We've experienced the blessing. We've experienced the victory. We've, we've experienced God's hand of protection even in ways we didn't know. One of the things we were careful to do, we prayed for protection on the way up because we saw the steep slides and, you know, you got all these crazy kids running around. But on the way back, we also remembered to stop again and thank God that all of us were still there, that all of us were still healthy, that he had protected us. Sometimes we take that for granted too, don't we? And yet, on the mountaintop, when things are well, when things are good, there is no pressure. There doesn't seem to be any trouble. It doesn't mean there's not trouble. I'm just not aware of it. And so I can go my own way. I can just cruise now. I've got this. And that's where the trouble comes. When my eyes are on the Lord, off the Lord, it's much easier for the enemy to distract me into something else. And so... Joshua has cried out. Now we're going to be running before our enemies. And Lord, what about your reputation? What about your name? Why did you allow any of this to happen? God, where were you? Look at verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, have you ever had an answer like this in your prayer? The Lord said to Joshua, get up. What are you doing here? Why are you bothering me? Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. God said, why are you here? Israel has sinned, not God. There are times when the distance between us and God seems to have increased. Somewhere along the way, something happened, and I've, I don't have that sweet fellowship that I, I remember having. Somebody seems to have moved here. God, what happened? God, where did you go? I can tell you this. God is never the one that has moved away. No. We'll wander. But when we walk in the light as he is in the light, we will have fellowship one with another. God doesn't run from us. Sometimes we wander off and, get, and we will separate ourselves from him. Israel has sinned. And you see how God continues to make this a corporate thing. But remember, we read before Achan had done this. And later on, I want to get to the end of the, the end of this section where Achan actually gives his confession. Look down about verse well, from verse 16 onward, there's a casting of lots. So now Joshua's going to go back. Okay, well, there's sin in the camp. Let's identify it. Let's narrow down by a system of choosing down from, from clan to family to smaller family groupings down to an individual. And it ends up putting the finger of God on this man, Achan. And so Joshua says to Achan in verse 19, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel. Give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it. Don't hide it. He says, confess it. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 2,200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. One translation I read, they are hidden inside, my, inside with my stuff. I put it with my stuff. That's great. I wish I would had that translation with me this morning. Beautiful new set of clothes, some coin to spend, a little chunk of gold. It wasn't a big chunk, a little chunk of gold that I can just put away for the future for some time when I might need that. Seemed like a good idea at the time. God said no, but God's got all this stuff. Nobody's going to miss this. Who's going to know? It's not much, really. Think about it for a minute. Where is Achan ever going to wear this new set of Babylon clothes. 
Achan, nice threads. None of us had anything like that that lasted through the wilderness. Achan, where'd you get those duds? It's kind of like the pastor that skips church on Sunday and he goes golfing. All right, calls in sixth, calls one of his elders, can you preach? Oh, terrible this morning. Heads to the beautiful day, he heads to the golf course. He has this outstanding game, best game ever. Finally, the last hole, he tees off, and it goes up, and it, and it begins to slice, but then the wind comes along and blows it right back. It lands right on the green, rolls, dribbles right into the cup, a hole in one on the last hole. The angels look at the Lord and say, Lord, what are you doing? He skipped church to go play golf. The Lord says, yeah. Who's he going to tell? <laughs> he had to hide it. He had to hide this stuff and bury it under his tent. What's he going to do with it, really? That's how sin is. It's illogical. If we saw it in the light of all that we have in Christ, it seems so foolish and ridiculous. But at the time, it's shiny stuff. And what are people going to think of me when I wear this? What are people going to think of me when I got some coin in my pocket? They're going to say, man, you took the stuff and we paid for it. Because that's what happens here. You see, it doesn't, one of the, one of the, most moving assignments I had in seminary, I've shared this a couple of times. You may have heard me tell this before. One of the most moving assignments I had in seminary was not a Greek grammar exercise. Surprising as that is. It was an assignment in a pastoral class where, they, where he said, imagine if you were to sin morally. If you were to fail, a, a, a moral failure, imagine the consequences of that on your Ministry. Imagine the repercussions, what that would do to people in your church. Imagine what that would do to your family and your marriage, your children. And I want you to write a paper. It wasn't a theological paper. It, wasn't a, it was an imaginary paper. It was a what-if paper describing the outcomes of what would happen if you were to sin in a particular way like this. It was eye-opening to think about because we normally don't do that. You know, I had a, had a conversation with one of the guys as we were just traveling along and in, the, in the midst of you know, just time together. You can have opportunities now to get into talking. You know? One of the guys was just thrilled he's going to get his driver's license soon. I love that because you don't always see that the same excitement today that I remember. Finally, 16, driver's license. Freedom! Right? I mean, I didn't have mom and dad taxiing me anywhere. If I wanted to go somewhere before I could drive, it was on my bicycle. And so... I was going to have a car, I was going to get a license. He's going to get a license. He wants to get a car. It's all like, it's very exciting. I said, and we talk about, but the insurance, man, the insurance is higher. You know, when you're a teenager, insurance is higher. It really raises the rates. And especially, he said, if you're a teenage guy. I said, you know why that is, don't you? Why is that? That's not fair. It's because teenage guys. Teenage guys' brains develop differently than teenage girls. No, it's, no this is true. I'm not just making this up. You think I'm just picking on the guys now? I'm not. This is why this happens, that teenage guys, as their brains are developing, the part that takes a few years longer than it does with girls is the, is the part of the brain that deals with causes and consequences and anticipating the things that could happen. That anticipating, that thinking of the consequences. It's like it's real true with, there's a, I don't know if any of you have seen Dumbo Drop. One of my favorite lines in the movie Dumbo Drop, you don't have to go watch it, but it's one guy tapping another guy on the chest. He says, people like you don't think things through. You ought to be talking about teenage guys. 
It's not your fault. You're just, as you're, as you're growing, developing, that part of the brain comes last for some reason. But all of us are like that in some ways. We often don't think about the consequences of what could happen. And we need to. Because God just, God just doesn't like big on rules. He likes rules. He's God, so he gets to have it his way. No. He wants the very best for the children he loves. And we don't know, surprisingly, we don't know what God knows about what's good. And so I told him, I said, there'll be times in your teenage years, there'll be times when you want to do something and your friends are going to do something and somebody says, hey, dude, we should go in. And you know in the back of your mind, your parents probably wouldn't want you to do that. And you don't know why. They're just big on rules or something. Because you can't anticipate anything going badly. And so you want to just go along with it even though you know they probably wouldn't like it because you can't see anything badly. Trust your parents on this one. Follow your gut or theirs. Because they can anticipate things that you won't see coming, right? God's like that for us. He knows far better than us the stuff that's coming. He knows it. And he would guard us from it if only we would listen. If only we would take AI his way instead of our way. It wouldn't lead, it, it wouldn't lead to our ruin. So Achan confesses, and Achan is judged. In fact, all of his family and all of his stuff is gathered together, and they're stoned, and it's burned. Everything that was devoted to God, including Achan, who was also devoted to God, is now judged before all of Israel. And a second pillar is established. Like the pillar was established out of Jordan, a second pillar is established, and this is the pillar of the trouble of Achan. And Israel needs to learn this. And it seems very harsh. But we can think about that in a corporate terms in a whole body of people and that we need to guard ourselves in the midst of one another. That we're part of a body together and family does this for one another and family watches out for one another and family corrects one another. And we do that out of love. We'll correct one another. And there's some of that in the story. That's 1 Corinthians 5. That's what's going on there. But there's another part of the story. I want you to think about it individually. One man sinned and God is angry at Israel. Who is Israel? Israel's a whole bunch of people. Israel's hundreds of thousands, right? Israel is a whole nation, and Israel is one man. Israel is the new name that God gave Jacob. Israel's one man. And so there's a part of this that I want you to think about in me as a new redeemed follower of Jesus, there's still a little Achan in me. Paul says in Romans 7, sin still dwells in me, the one who wishes to do good. There's still a little Achan in me. And I need to follow the prescription of Joshua 7 here. I need to root it out. I need to not give it any quarter. I need to show it no mercy. Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, what should you do? Slap that hand. Is that what he says? No. Chop it off. Anybody got a machete? We got an object lesson. No, we don't. That wasn't quite Jesus' point to have a lot of one-eyed one-armed or one-eyed people going around, was it? His point is don't give any, any opportunity for sin in your natural body. Root it out. Don't give it opportunity. Don't give it any quarter. We know that for ourselves. If we say we don't have any sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what we can learn from the story of Achan. 
rooted out. I'm going to give us a chance to just pause right here. And we're going to take an awkward minute of silence. And it's going to seem like five or ten to some of you. But we're going to take a minute and we're going to, we're going to pray individually. God, search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my mind. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in your everlasting way. Some of you know exactly what it is. You know what you've been hiding. You know what you have hidden under your tent. And now's the time to bring it out, show it to God. Say, God, would you take this? Would you take this away from me? You say, oh, I've been there yesterday. I was there the day before. I've already confessed this, and we're going to do it again. We're going to keep a very short account, and we're going to believe God who says that we confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive it and to cleanse us. So we'll pause right now. I'm going to give you about a minute, and then I will, I will lead us together in prayer. Heavenly Father, you know us better than we know ourselves. Lord, if you showed us all of our sin at once, it would be too much for us. Father, this thing that you've, by your Spirit, brought to our mind now, Lord, we confess to you. Lord, we agree with you about our sin as sin. And Lord, we claim your forgiveness in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We, Lord, lay our sin upon him and we claim the forgiveness that you freely give to us in Jesus. Father, we thank you for it. Lord, would you make us strong and courageous? Would those words through this book echo in our own heart? Father, give us the courage to follow you, to devote ourselves to you so that we're not so easily drawn away by our own desires and enticed by our enemy and his minions. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, we ask for your continued cleansing by your Spirit. Transform us more into those who devotedly follow you and who give ourselves to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What happens after... Achan, what happens after the valley of trouble picks up in chapter 8? Now the Lord says to Joshua, don't fear, don't be dismayed. Because Joshua was afraid and he was dismayed. What are we going to do? How can we survive? Our hope of a new life, a victory, a new land is gone. No, 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 take all the fighting men with you. All the fighting men. Everybody, not just 3,000. 
And arise and go to Ai. See, I've given it into your hand. The king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its kings as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city. As you read the story, what God does is God uses Ai's pride now against them. They think they've got this. They think they, Israel ran before him once. They'll run like girls again. And they can go, oh, did I say that? Sorry, girls. They, they, now they've got them. Right? And, and they're going to draw them out of the city. They're going to use their own pride, their own confidence in themselves. They're going to use the same sin Israel had against their enemies now. And God is going to give them the spoils of the city. It's not about God withholding. It's not about God wants all the stuff for himself and doesn't want you to have it. No, God wants you to want him first. God wants you to follow him first. And he will give you the desires of your heart. And they will be his desires for you as you follow him. It's not about withholding stuff. It's about worshiping God first. God will give them the victory, but they must all go, all in it together. You will not coast along on somebody else's spiritual victory, whether it's your friends, whether it's your parents, whether it's your family, whether it's others in the church. You will not coast along. No, we're all in it, and we all need to take that next step forward. What happens at the end, after the victory of Ai, is God regathers all the people now, and they do. They step into this covenant reaffirmation that we are God's people that Moses gave them at the end of the book of Deuteronomy in chapters 27 and 28. They gather at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and they go through the, all the th- everything that's, that's described in, in, in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. There are the blessings, and there are the cursings, and there's actually... In the future, you're going to wander away, God says. And you're going to be, end up in exile because you have wandered away from me. And yet I am going to bring you back from there. And when I bring you back from there, then devote yourselves to me. That's, that's in their future. That's, going to, that's, the, that's the big layout of Israel's history. And yet it has been their experience in the tale of two cities. And it's not just Israel's experience. It was Adam and Eve's experience, humanity is now being restored. It it was David's experience. He sinned. There were consequences. He was chosen and blessed, and yet he sinned, and there were consequences, and, and yet God restored him mercifully and graciously. And it's you and my experience. God has called us. God has blessed us with all the riches of blessings in Christ Jesus, and yet we'll wander off. When we do quickly, easily, authentically, genuinely confess your sins and experience God's gracious forgiveness and cleansing. We're going to sing a song that reminds us of that. It's a song that's called Come to the Altar. Perhaps you've heard it on the radio. It's it's an invitation to that kind of repentance and embracing all over again God's forgiveness and cleansing. We're going to devote ourselves to God. We're going to receive the, this morning's offering that we give God something first out of what he has blessed us with. These things we're going to do because we worship and follow him. Would you pray with me? Father, we do, Lord, trust ourselves to you. Father, we, we trust that your way is better than our way, and so we will follow you. And Lord, when we do not follow you well, we will come again to your altar. We will will confess our sin before you, our faltering or our lack of, of trust. 
and we will, we will receive your cleansing again. And Father, would you then receive these, the, these gifts that we bring. Lord, the prayer requests that we share, the giving of ourselves and serving that we might write on this card. Lord, because we not only give what we have, we give ourselves to you again this morning. We must do that day by day. Lord, would you receive not only a gift that we bring, would you receive from us now our own lives that you are worthy of in worship. Lord, would you bless and use us for your glorious purpose. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.